You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 3, with Daniel Pell. All right, good evening and welcome to our series, Echoes from the Past and Pictures of the Future. I'm excited to continue our series, and this is our third presentation entitled, The Story of Three Kings, the story of three kings. We're going to continue where we have left off in the book of Daniel. And tonight we're going to look at chapters, particularly chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the book of Daniel. And so I look forward to open God's word together with you and explore the pages of history and the pages of prophecy. Before we do that, we're going to have another word of prayer so that we invite the Spirit of God to be with us before we begin our study. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can be gathered again, and we ask for your spirit to be with us as we open your word. May you speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit and give us understanding of prophecy. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, we're going to look a little bit at the background of Israel before the captivity because I think this plays in um, as we get into the story of three kings and those three kings are the kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia. But we're going to look at the story of some other kings first, these kings that reigned prior to the captivity that lived in Judah and that were kings of the Jews. Now, the first king that I would like to go to, the story, is of King Hezekiah. Maybe some of you have read the story in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. You have the story of the kings in Judah and the kings in Israel. One of them was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah reigned, ruled in Judah during the reign of the Assyrians. And Assyrians were, was the nation that ruled prior to the Babylonians. The Babylonians actually um, conquered the Assyrians. Hezekiah, or there was another king, the king of Babylon at that time, which, which was a king by the name of Merodach Baladan, and he heard about what had happened to Hezekiah and about his miraculous healing, and so he sent gifts to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was, was very pleased with those gifts that he received from this Babylonian king. At this time, Babylon was not the, ma the major player um, on the scene. It was Assyria that was the big kingdom and the mighty kingdom at that time. Babylonian was rising though. And so this king of Babylon sends a message to Hezekiah and sends gifts to Hezekiah when he heard about his healing. Hezekiah invites the king of Babylon to come and what he does is really, was really a mistake and was really uh, leading to a lot of um, uh, had a lot of consequences in later years and led to a lot of calamity, um, Hezekiah invited the king to come and he showed him all his treasures. He showed him all that he owned, all that he had. Now shortly after that, Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah with the following message. And this is a prophetic message that ties into our story in the book of Daniel. So take notice of this message that Isaiah brings to Hezekiah after that he has shown his treasures to the king of Babylon. While Babylon at that time was not the most mighty nation, it was Assyria. But listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 3 to 7. It says, Then Isaiah Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from where? From Babylon. 
And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. He showed them everything. Can you imagine Hezekiah is leading this king of Babylon? Because he believes that this king is his friend. He sent him gifts because he was healed. And so he's showing him everything. He's showing him his palace, showing him his armory, showing him his military. Everything that he had, he showed to the king of Babylon. Now listen to what the prophet says. This is very significant. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. When all that is in your house and what your fathers have, have accumulated until this day shall be carried to where? Carried to Babylon. There we have the first prophecy that is, is given in God's word regarding the captivity that would happen. And, and that's exactly where the book of Daniel opens up with that captivity. I want you to take notice, though, that when these words were spoken by Isaiah the prophet, this was, this was approximately a century before this prophecy was fulfilled. There was a lot that was going to happen even between the days of Hezekiah and the ultimate captivity in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what happened in between? Let's look at that as well. Um, Hezekiah, during those extra 15 years that he received after the miraculous healing, had a son by the name of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh turned in a very different direction than his father. Manasseh became a king that pursued after heathenism. He pursued after the nations around him, and he led Israel into darkness. And they forsook the counsel of the prophets and the counsel of the Lord that had been graciously given to them. As a matter of fact, during the reign of Manasseh, many of God's prophets were persecuted. Manasseh had a son by the name of Ammon, and with Ammon it was the very same story. Ammon uh, walked in the footsteps of his father, Manasseh. So right after Hezekiah, we have a period of great darkness in Judah, both under the reign of Manasseh and under the reign of Ammon. But then something happened. Ammon had a son, and his son became king at a very young age, and this is the king by the name of Josiah. And you might remember the story of this child king. Josiah was the king of Ammon, and he became a king at the age of eight, and he was a king that turned his heart to the Lord. He was a king from, ver from a very young age under, under um, good counselors that turned the tie of Judah, of the Jews, back to the Lord. It was in the days of Josiah that there was a great revival in the land. There was a great reformation in Judah. Uh, you can read about this story in the book of Chronicles of how um, they find the book of the law or the Old Testament documents of the prophets, the writings of the prophets in the temple of the Lord. They had been lost and yet they are found. And what Josiah does is he, he causes them to be read in front of all the people. And as they are reading, there's weeping amongst the people. They are aware of their sins. They are aware of the course that they have taken that has led them into darkness. And now they rededicate their lives to God. Now, this is significant because in the days of Josiah, when you look at the chronology of the Bible, you will find out that Daniel, the prophet, was a, was a child at that time. And so you can almost imagine that when these words were read, when this great revival swept through the land, that it could well have been that Daniel was right there listening to those words as a child. 
Now, what happened with Josiah? Josiah went to battle with the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt actually was um, passing through the land of Judah and um, uh, Josiah went to war with the king of Egypt and he died in that battle. He died in the year 608 BC. Now, King Josiah was one of Judah's greatest leaders, and he was fatally wounded um, on the field of battle close to uh, Megiddo. And they took his body back to Jerusalem, and there was great mourning and lamenting as this great man that had caused this revival had died. It is believed that the prophet Daniel at this time was a young man, a, young, a teenager of approximately 15 years old. So I want you to catch on to the story here. Daniel had been brought up um, in the counsel of the Lord. He had experienced this great revival from a young age. And now when he is 15, this great king that had led Israel, in, had led Judah in many ways into the, into the paths of God had now passed away. There was great mourning. Now, Daniel, according to God's, according to the Bible, we, we, we learn that Daniel was from a royal bloodline. In other words, he was related somehow to these kings and he was a prince um, in, um, in Judah, one of the princes, not directly as to uh, the line of the throne, but he was one of the royal, he, he had royal blood in his veins, we could say. And so when he heard about these things, you can imagine what is going on in the mind of Daniel. He had committed his life to the Lord. He had committed himself to be a man of integrity, to be um, a voice for for God as we see throughout his life. Now what happened after Josiah died? Daniel was 15. This is the year 608 BC and the captivity has not yet happened. As a matter of fact, many many years has have gone by since Isaiah long ago predicted the captivity. There have been kings coming and falling. There's been there have been kings that have led led Judah into paths of darkness like Manasseh and Ammon, but there's also been a time of great revival and reformation, but now after Josiah died, the nation is led back into darkness. It is so sad to see the story because um, it is like a roller coaster ride. It's going up and down. And now the king that follows Josiah is his son, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiahaz. And he only reigned for a very short period of time. And then there was another son of Josiah that reigned for a very short time by the name of Jehoiakim. And another son, Zedekiah and another grandson Jehoiakim and these kings just each of them reigned for a very short period but each of them turned into the ways of darkness they did not follow the counsel of their father they did not follow in the revival and reformation of Josiah and the darkness that enveloped around Judah was even darker than in the days of Manasseh and Ammon this was a, a time of spiritual drought you could say now, during this period, God did not forsake his people because he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And one of the prophets that stood forth in this period of utter darkness was none other than the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah um, came after the prophet Isaiah. And Jeremiah is also called the weeping prophet. And you read the book of Jeremiah and it's quite tragic. It's quite sad because he was a prophet that stood up and he had no recognition. The people hated him. The people, um, you know, cast him out. As a matter of fact, one time he was even cast into a muddy pit for several days. He was a prophet that suffered much. And yet he would always continue 
to speak the words that the Lord laid upon his mouth. One of the prophecies that Jeremiah predicted is the following in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11. Jeremiah said, And this whole land, talking about the land of Judah, shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, let's put these puzzle pieces together, because long before this, Isaiah predicted already to Hezekiah, more than a century before the fulfillment of the captivity, he predicted that everything would be taken to Babylon, that they would lose the land, that destruction would be upon Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah predicts that they will go into captivity for a period of 70 years. These ancient prophecies have been fulfilled to the exact dates. It is incredible to see these classical ancient prophecies fulfilling. You know, we, we, we often look at the apocalyptic prophecies, which are really the prophecies um, that pertain more to uh, our day and age, and they are certainly inspiring. We're going to look at a lot of them throughout this series. But we should not neglect these ancient classical prophecies that came to pass and that are really verifying the authenticity and, veric- uh, and the veracity of Scripture. We can trust Scripture. We can trust that Scripture is true because of all these prophecies that have come to pass Um, throughout the ages. So then the captivity eventually took place. The words of Isaiah came to be fulfilled as well as the words of Jeremiah. The first invasion, invasion of the Chaldeans took place in 605 BC. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians Uh, And yet there were three invasions. The first one took place in 605 BC. And in this invasion, Daniel the prophet was taken. Then there was a second invasion in the year 598 BC. And a much larger group was deported during that invasion. And then the final invasion happened in 586 BC. And during that time, the remaining temple treasures were taken to Babylon. So in total, there were three captivities Um, three invasions, um, and uh, ultimately Jerusalem was left in ruins. Now, Nebuchadnezzar that invaded Jerusalem during that first captivity in 605 BC, just as he invaded Jerusalem, he heard of the report that his father had died. And so he rushed back to Babylon to make sure that he would secure the throne. And he took a fast route to make sure that there would be no uh, revolt while he was gone. Uh, And Daniel and his friends and, and those that were deported during that first captivity were caused to take the longer route and to walk all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map, but that's quite a distance. It is estimated approximately 1,500 kilometers And so the prophet Daniel is walking that distance. And then they come to a total different country, a total different kingdom. Everything is new. Everything is different. And yet here we read about the story of the faithfulness of this prophet and the faithfulness of his friends as they dedicate their lives to God in this foreign land. So I hope you got a little bit of the background now so we can understand even better the, uh, the prophecies and the backdrop of the book. Because as we get into these stories in the book of Daniel, we understand that uh, the reason why they were in Babylon was because of a period of 
utter, um, utter darkness, a period in which they forsook God. And they were a small nation amongst greater nations. And yet God had his hand of protection upon them. But when they forsook him and followed in the ways of heathenism, the protective hand of God was withdrawn. And through this captivity, God was teaching his people a very special lesson and a very special, uh, in a special way, he was going to um, continue to teach them in their Babylonian captivity so that when at the end of those seventh years, they could go back with a new purpose, with a new vision, with a new identity to restore Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and that also took place. But that we will come to also in a later presentation. But let's now look at the story of the kings in Babylon. We've looked at the story of the kings in Judah. Now we want to look at the story of the kings in Babylon. Because this is, this is absolutely amazing. And I want, I, I want you to remember this. That God, just as he worked with the kings in Judah, so God also works with the kings in Babylon. God is not a God that favors one and not the other. Sometimes we think when we read the story of the kings and we read the story of uh, Judah and Israel that they were the favored nation and that God didn't care about the other nations. Well, that is far from being the truth. God is not favoriting, but he wanted them to be a light for the nations around them. When they were not a light, and they were taken into captivity, God starts to now shine his light to these heathen kings. And the story of the three kings, which we find in Daniel chapter 4, 5, and 6, is a story of how God is using the prophet Daniel to influence the lives of these mighty, mighty kings in Babylon and Medo-Persia. So let's look at our first story. Well, you will remember in um, Daniel chapter 2, and we looked at this in our last presentation, how Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it's quite fascinating that the dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar and not to Daniel. God could have give, given that dream directly to Daniel of, of the image and the various kingdoms and what they would represent and, and how uh, and God could have showed to Daniel the future from Babylon even to the second coming of Christ to his second coming. And yet he chose to give the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, to the Babylonian king. Why? Because he wanted the Babylonian king to be accustomed and to, um, to, to receive a knowledge of the God of heaven, the creative God. Isn't that powerful? That's beautiful. God was reaching out to this king. When you look at the first verses in each chapter, you get kind of the storyline of the king Nebuchadnezzar, the first king that we want to look at here. And Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon, uh, King of Babylon, sorry, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And there, right in the first chapter, you have the story of the captivity under Nebuchadnezzar. Then you look at the first verse of chapter 2, and it gives us kind of a, uh, an idea of what that chapter is about. It says, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. That was the dream that he had of the image with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the thighs of brass, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And Daniel the prophet gave the interpretation of that dream, the various medals representing various kingdoms from the days of Babylon right until the end of time. Then chapter 3 and verse 1, it again, each chapter starts with Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see the flow of the story here. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. 
He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We looked at this earlier as well. Nebuchadnezzar was not really convinced about that dream that he heard. He liked the idea of the head being gold, but he liked even better the idea of the entire image being gold. And so he set up the golden image in the plains of Dura, causes all his wise men and counselors and all his important people, the, 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 the vips of his empire, to come together and by the sound of music, by the sound of the music, as they heard that, he said, you must bow down, you must worship this image. If you don't, you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. We remember that the friends of Daniel that were present there, they refused to bow down. They are thrown into the fiery furnace, and yet Jesus Christ himself appears in their midst, and they are delivered. At the end of that story, Nebuchadnezzar glorifies the God of heaven. He glorifies the God of Daniel and his friends. And yet there is not a complete change happening in him. There was still something that this king had to learn. God was working with him already by giving him the dream of prophecy. God was working with him already by revealing his will through these three young men that did not bow down to his image. And yet there was another lesson that he was to learn. And this we come to, and then we come to chapter four, an incredible story. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel has 12 chapters, and 11 of those chapters are written by the prophet Daniel, but one of those chapters is not written by the, by the prophet Daniel. Chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. So the chapter that we're, that we're looking at now, Nebuch uh, Daniel chapter 4, is written by no other than Nebuchadnezzar. And listen to his words, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. So Nebuchadnezzar is writing a letter to all those in his nation, in his kingdom, and he wants to declare the works that God has done for him. What did God do for him? Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 4 as we look at this together. Because I didn't put the, all the verses on the screen. I want you to also be able to follow along in the Bible. So you can turn to Daniel chapter 4. And also those that are viewing this can take your Bible and, and, and follow along with us. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream, and we read about the description of the dream that he has. It is very different than the dream he had in chapter 2. He does not dream this time about an image made of various metals, but he dreams about a huge big tree. And this tree is filled with birds. It is filled with, it, it provides shelter for all. It, it reaches it says in the dream, it reaches unto the ends of the earth. It is a huge big tree. Suddenly, as he beholds this big tree, the tree is cut down. The tree is cut down. And the king wakes up. He wakes up in the morning. And he does not know what that dream represents. He does not know what it means. And so he does the very same thing that he did in the story in chapter 2. He calls all his wise men together. He calls the Chaldeans together, the astrologers, the magicians. And he asks them to give an interpretation of the dream. Well, they cannot give an interpretation of the dream. And they fail utterly. And so then he calls Daniel the prophet. And Daniel the prophet comes to the king. And listen to what he says. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. And take notice 
of verse 17. Uh, verse 18, let's start in verse 18. This dream, I, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, that's an, that was the Babylonian name for Daniel, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. There's some conviction in Nebuchadnezzar that the prophet Daniel is going to be able to give the interpretation of this dream. Now, verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Well, that already indicates that the dream is not really good news. Daniel the prophet says, May it concern your enemies. What was the dream about? This huge big tree that seemed to give shelter to everyone, that provided life to all, that reached even unto the uttermost parts of the earth, and yet then it was suddenly cut down? What does it mean? Verse 20. Daniel gives the interpretation. He says, That tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king. Now, remember, back in Daniel chapter 2, with the image with the head of gold, Daniel the prophet said that that head of gold, it is you, Nebuchadnezzar. It is you. And yet now in this dream, the tree is a representation of Nebuchadnezzar. Now listen as he continues to explain and interpret the dream. Verse 23, And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. So there was some type of a holy being, maybe an angel that came down, cut down the tree, and then it was left there for seven times, till seven times would pass over. Now, verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the degree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives to to it whomsoever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. In other words, this is a judgment upon King Nebuchadnezzar. The tree that is cut down is a a picture of the kingdom that is going to be taken from Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel does not only give the interpretation of the dream, but he adds an advice for the king. Listen to what it says there in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel says, Please, king, Turn around from your wicked ways. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had this huge and mighty kingdom, and yet he had not been given glory to God. He had been, he had been taken all glory to himself. 
He would go and take pride in the fact that, that he had made this Babylon. He did not humble himself in the sight of God, which had actually given him the strength to have that kingdom, had given him that power. Now, Daniel says to the king, turn away from your wicked ways. Give glory to the God in heaven. Now, a time was given to Nebuchadnezzar in order to repent. And yet, a year went by before the judgment ultimately took place and the dream had its effects. Take notice of what it says in verse 28. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28. It says, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. Now, what happened at the end of 12 months? What happened after a year after the dream had been given? It says in verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking about in the royal palace of Babylon. So there he is, Nebuchadnezzar. Think, picture it in your mind. He's walking on the walls and he's looking down upon that great city that he has built. Verse 30, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the royal dwelling of my majesty? For the power, for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in, still in the king's mouth, verse 31, a voice fell from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. At that very moment, while those words were in his mouth, after a year of time that he had been given in order to turn around from his ways, he had been warned by the dream, and yet he persisted to give glory to none other than himself. And what happened? Verse 32. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of heaven and gives to whomsoever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from his kingdom. The Bible says he became mad. He, he lost his mind, and he dwelt in the fields he lived like an animal for a period of seven times, which is a period of seven years. For seven years, he lost his kingdom. Now, at the end of that seven-year period, according to the dream, the kingdom would be restored to him. And listen to what it says there in verse 34. Remember, this is, this is the chapter in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar himself has written. So here he is recording the account as I'm reading from this chapter. These are the very words of Nebuchadnezzar that he penned down and sent out into all his realm, into all his kingdom. Verse 34. It's quite a humbling story, by the way, for himself to tell. But listen to the end. It has a good end. Verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored, resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. It was the grace of God that he returned, that he received back his kingdom, and he gave glory to God. And then the last verse says in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. 
And that was a personal testimony. He knew that as he walked in his prideful ways, that God was able to humble the pride, the prideful. And here Nebuchadnezzar reports his conversion story. What a powerful, powerful God we serve. God that worked in the life of the prophet Daniel also worked in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And through the prophet, Nebuchadnezzar turned his heart to the Lord. God was trying to reach the kings of Judah before the captivity. But just as God was reaching out to the kings in Judah that, that, that walked in their own ways, and ultimately he, he allowed the captivity to take place, but now he's working upon the kings in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar turns his heart to the Lord. That's the last thing, by the way, we hear about King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Right there in chapter 4, that's the last thing we hear. And yet he committed his life to God, and he became a follower of the God of heaven. He became a follower of the God of heaven. And so we move into Daniel um, chapter 5, because you will remember that already back in chapter 2, in the prophetic image of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, it was already uh, prophesied that Babylon uh, was going to be um, another kingdom was going to come. Another kingdom was going to conquer Babylon. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 39, uh, the prophet said to Nebuchadnezzar, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And there are also other prophecies in scripture that predicted the fall of Babylon. For example, Isaiah in chapter 13 and verse 19, he said, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll remember that they were destroyed by fire and they were never again rebuilt. And so there are predictions in Scripture of the fall of Babylon. And it happened after the days of Nebuchadnezzar, though. Nebuchadnezzar had a grandson that ruled, and he was a king that we read about in chapter 5, and his name is Belshazzar. Now, don't mix that up with Belteshazzar, which was the Babylonian name for Daniel. Uh, but here we have a king by the name of Belshazzar. And the story of King Belshazzar, which was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, we read about in chapter 5. But sadly enough, you know, it's not always that children walk in the footsteps of their fathers, in the footsteps of their parents. Just like Josiah was a good king in Judah, but then his sons walked contrary to the ways of the Lord, and they turned away from that great revival and reformation that had swept through the land. So it was that even though Nebuchadnezzar gave his heart to God and he was converted to the God of heaven, his son and grandson and the kings that followed walked contrary to the ways of God. And we read in chapter 5 about uh, King Belshazzar. And this king, this story, is a story of the overthrow of Babylon as a nation. In Daniel chapter 5, you read how, you read how Belshazzar um, gathers together all his, all his um, uh, important men, and he holds this great big feast. And this feast is held at the very time that Medo-Persia is marching against Babylon. Now, before we get into the story, I must mention that this um, King Belshazzar has been really under question for a long time. Um, as a matter of fact, the critics... Um, against the book of Daniel have really um, tried to criticize the dating and the time and the storyline of the book of Daniel based upon this king because they said, well, this king just didn't exist. 
This king was just not there. As a matter of fact, they, they say that King Nabonidus was the last king in Babylon, according to secular historical accounts. And so they say, well, the Bible says that it was Belshazzar that was the last king when Babylon was overthrown. So how, how does this match up? And for a long time, uh, Belshazzar, we could say, was exhibit A in the case against the book of Daniel. And yet in recent years, interestingly enough, this whole thing took a turn because they found uh, a piece of evidence, which was a clay tablet bearing the names of both King um, Nabonidus and King Belshazzar. Now, what happened to be the truth is that Nabonidus was the son of Nebuchadnezzar and the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar and they reigned at the same time. Nabonidus and Belshazzar reigned at the same time. And so when Babylon was overthrown, Belshazzar was in Babylon at that time. And shortly after that or shortly before that, I can't exactly remember, uh, Nabonidus, his father, was taken captive by Sir, by Sir, um, King Cyrus of Medo-Persia. And so both kings were eventually moved out of the way for Medo-Persia. And so uh, what was a long time held as a case against the book of Daniel by recent uh, discoveries of archaeologists has actually been proved um, to the contrary. It has been proved that exactly, and some of these uh, documents that have been found uh, not only point out that Belshazzar was a king in Babylon, but it also specifies what he did, which correlates and corresponds with the biblical account. So it's just, it's just beautiful to see uh, powerful to see that though there are sometimes questions about um, the historical setting of the book of Daniel, eventually evidence pops up that really um, points to the truthfulness of these stories. These are not just, you know, uh, nice bedtime stories. They're not just uh, exciting stories, but they are truthful accounts of history that have been uh, more and more verified by archaeological findings throughout the ages. And um, so what happened there in Daniel chapter 5? Well, Belshazzar, he, um, he's not really afraid of, uh, of the Medo-Persians that are surrounding the, king, the, the city of Babylon. As a matter of fact, he holds this great big feast and he takes the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem, which they had carried out uh, under the third captivity, and he starts desecrating them in this riotous feast. He starts using them in this riotous feast. Cyrus is just outside of Babylon and he is waiting for the opportunity to enter into Babylon. Now, right on that night, and we looked at this um, in, a, in, a, in an earlier presentation, you'll remember a writing on the wall appeared, and that writing on the wall could not be interpreted by any of the wise men, by any of the Chaldeans or the astrologers, and again, Daniel is brought on the scene. Now, you've you, you got to understand that by this time, Daniel is an old man. Um, he's probably in his 80s uh, when this happened, when this trans transition occurred from uh, Babylon to Medo-Persia, this, this overthrow of the Babylonian uh, Empire. Now, he was brought on the scene, and it almost seems to be a reoccurring theme in the book of Daniel, that first there's a dream or there's some kind of interpretation that needs to be given. The wise men are brought together. They cannot give the interpretation. And then the prophet comes and gives the interpretation. God is vindicated. God is glorified. Amen? And so each and every time we see this as a reoccurring theme in the book of Daniel. So he comes on the scene as now as an aged man. He looks at, those, at that writing, which reads, Mene Mene Peres, or Mene Mene Tekel Upasen, and um, he interprets the writing to mean, God has weighed you in the balances and found you wanting. He has, given, he has divided your kingdom and given it to the 
Medes and the Persians. That's the meaning of the writing. And right on that very same night, Babylon falls into the hands of Medo-Persia. Um, Cyrus, which was really a genius in warfare, he diverted the waters of Euphrates, which was that river that ran under through the city of, uh, of Babylon, and he marched his men under the walls, and the gates were left open that night, and they conquered Babylon in one night. Now, this prophecy was also mentioned in Isaiah. We read this verse earlier in Isaiah 45, where it even mentions Cyrus by name more than a hundred years before he was born. Prophet Isaiah mentioned Cyrus by name as the one that conquered Babylon. Now, what I want you to take notice of is that this scenario, this story of Daniel chapter 5, is really important for us because when we get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see that similar names and terminology is going to reappear. That's why I titled this series, Echoes from the Past and pictures of the future. Because these echoes, these stories are important because they, they provide us with a setting to understand later prophecies in the book of Revelation. So I just want to give you a little glimpse into where this language is used in the book of Revelation. We're not going to go actually into this prophecy. We will in a future presentation. But take notice of the usage of the name, uh, the names like Babylon and Euphrates and, and things like that. Uh, one of those texts is Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. And the Bible says the following, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. This is also termed the sixth plague. Um, on the great river Euphrates. And its waters was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, that language sounds familiar when you look at the story in Daniel chapter 5. Wasn't that exactly what happened? The Euphrates was the river that was running through Babylon. It was dried up by Cyrus, which was a king. And from which direction did Cyrus come? He came from the... He came from the east. He came from the Medo-Persian Empire. And he conquered Babylon. Now, in the book of Revelation, this kind of language takes on a worldwide um, application. And so, as in the storyline of Daniel, we have the literal meaning and the literal language and the literal stories. And in the book of Revelation, it takes on a wider application. And we're going to come back to that as we uh, move our way through the pages of Revelation. But it is very interesting to note that in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of similar terminology that you encounter in the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, there's an entire chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 18, which deals with the overthrow and the fall of Babylon. Now, you think, well, Revelation, dealing with apocalyptic prophecies, pictures of the future, things that are still going to happen before us on the horizon, and it talks about Babylon, and it talks about Ephrates, and it talks about all this language that we're familiar with from the book of Daniel, from the stories and the echoes of the past. This has a meaning because when we understand those stories, we can reapply these stories on a worldwide scale as prophecies come to pass in the final days or the final time of uh, Earth's history. And that's going to be very interesting as we get more into that in later presentations. Now, what did Cyrus do? Cyrus, as he conquered Babylon that night, according to Scripture, and this is also recorded in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 22 and 23, it is recorded what Cyrus did because it was already predicted that after 70 years, remember the, uh, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11, he said 70 years you'll go into captivity. After those 70 years, they would be released and they would return and they would rebuild uh, Jerusalem. Now that had to happen then in the time of the Medes and the Persians that had now conquered. Those 70 years were now running out. They were coming to a close. 
And it was Cyrus was the one that gave the command for the Jews to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Listen to the, listen to the words here in Second Chronicles, the record of this degree that was passed by um, Cyrus. It says the following. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me, listen to that language, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of, who is among you of all his people. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now think, this is a heathen king that is speaking these words. A heathen king that understands that God has laid upon him a burden to release the Jews and allow them to go back so that they can restore the temple. Not only did Cyrus uh, allow them to go back, but as a matter of fact, you read how he supplied um, treasures for them and, 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 and supplies for them in order to build that temple, in order to restore that temple in Jerusalem. He provided protection for them while they rebuilt the city and the temple. Isn't it amazing that the words of the prophets come to pass over and over and over again as we look at this incredible storyline uh, found in the book of Daniel? And so we come to Daniel chapter 6. We've looked at Daniel chapter 4, the conversion story of Nebuchadnezzar. We looked at Daniel chapter 5, the fall of Babylon in the, in the days of King uh, Belshazzar. And so we look at Daniel chapter 6, and this is the third king, the story of the third king. We looked at King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. One was a good story, and the other ended very tragic. Uh, we look at a third story of a king in chapter 6, and this is King Darius. Now, Darius, many scholars believe that he was the uncle of Cyrus, and even though Cyrus was the one that was instrumental in conquering Babylon, he gave the reign to his uncle Darius, which reigned in Babylon the city. And in, during his reign, Daniel the prophet now is very aged. He's probably in his, yeah, in his 90s. He's, he's an old man by this time. Um, this was just prior to the release of the Jews and as they went back to rebuild the temple. By the way, Daniel himself never, never went back. He prayed earnestly that his people would go back, but he remained and died in Babylon. But in chapter 6, you read about this incredible story, what happened at the end of the life of Daniel. As he comes to the end of his life as an aged man, his faith was again put on the test. Many of you will remember this story. In Daniel chapter 6, we read about how Daniel became very prominent in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Not only was he one of the wise men and counselors in Babylon, but even in Medo-Persia, he became very quickly um, of great prominence. He was one of the uh, closest alliances to the king himself, to King Darius. Now the other governors and presidents of the country, they looked at Daniel and they were jealous. They did not like that he was above them. And they could not find anything against Daniel. And so they thought, how are we going to remove him out of the way? What are we going to do to get this guy out of the way so we can have that position that he has? And they came together and they're thinking about this. And the only thing that they could come up with is if they could find something against Daniel's God. If they could find something against him regarding his faith, regarding his commitment and worship to his God. And so what they do is they go to King Darius and they ask King Darius to sign a degree that for 30 days you cannot worship anyone except the king. 
Now, of course, the king listens to those words, and he's kind of flattered by that. And so he says, yeah, I'll sign that degree, and so he signs it. And according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once you have signed a law, once the king has put his seal of approval upon a law, it cannot be changed. No one can change it. As a matter of fact, the king himself cannot change it. It is the law of the Medes and the Persians, unchangeable laws. And so this law is sealed. It's, 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 it's done. It's a done deal. Now, of course, Daniel, he um, continues to pray to his God. As a matter of fact, what he would do, according to Daniel chapter 6, and as you read the story, you read how three times a day he would open up his windows and he would pray towards Jerusalem. There was special significance in that, by the way, because long, 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 long time before, under another king by the name of Solomon, uh, when they first built the temple... In Jerusalem, Solomon knelt down and dedicated that temple to the Lord. And in his dedication prayer, he said, If any time, for any reason, the people of, your, the people of God will go astray and they will end up in, into captivity, if they pray with their faces towards this place, may you bless, may you restore, may you bring them back. Words to that, um, uh, something like that. That was the prayer of Solomon. You can go back and read it. I believe it's First Kings chapter 8. An incredible prayer. And Daniel remembered those words. He had read those words in Scripture. And so what he does is he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And he prays towards Jerusalem because he wants his people to be able to go back and restore the temple and restore the city. As he's praying... In not, not shutting, his, not shutting uh, the windows and hiding somewhere in the corner of a room, but openly he prays, openly he confesses his faith. They see him do that, and so they report it to the king, and the king is obliged to cast Daniel into a den of lions. That was the penalty for worshiping any other during those 30 days. And so Daniel is taken, he is cast into the lion's den, and yet, during that entire night, none of those lions even touch him. He is, his life is preserved. As a matter of fact, when you look at that story, in many ways it's a type of what Jesus went through. Because the Bible tells us, and maybe we can read that together here in Daniel chapter 6. The Bible tells us that as Daniel was cast into that lion's den, listen to what, what, what the king did. Verse 16. And the king did this reluctantly. He tried to find his way out of it. He did not want Daniel to end like that. As a matter of fact, Daniel was very valuable to him, this prophet. But the law could not be changed. And so we read in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 16. So the king gave the command. They brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, listen to the words, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Those are the words of a heathen king to the prophet of the Lord, that God that you serve, not just now and then, not just once a week, but continually, he will deliver you. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought, laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. And so what is done? They take a stone and they roll it in front of this den. They seal it and they say that the purpose cannot be changed. Well, do you remember that when Jesus Christ was crucified, what did they do? They put him in a tomb. They rolled a stone in front that the purpose might not be changed. But praise God for the power of the resurrection. 
No one could keep that stone there, amen? That stone was rolled away by an angel, and Christ came out of the tomb victoriously. And so this is almost like a type of that, because here Daniel, in the lion's den, was not consumed, but he came out of that tomb victoriously. What the law of Medes and Persians believed could not be changed, God changed. God changed. God is sovereign. God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And powers and, and, and kings and presidents and governors and people in power today might try to do things. They might think that they have the ultimate word. And yet there's a God in heaven that has the ultimate word. There's a God in heaven that will speak the last word. And we see in this story so clearly that God is in the business of deliverance. Not just in those days in the past, but still for you and for me today. Now that morning, the king made his way hastily to the den and of lions, and he rolls back the stone, and listen to what it says here. Beautiful how this story ends. Then the king rose early, verse 19, in the morning, and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried uh, without with a lamenting voice to Daniel, the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, the fact that the king was actually shouting those words into the den showed that he had some kind of hope and trust that God was going to deliver, right? Because, you know, there was little chance if you really thought about being in a den of lions all night. And verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I've done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den and no injury whatever was found in him because he believed in his God. Because he believed in his God. What we see in each and every one of these stories is that God's name is vindicated. God is glorified through these stories. Even in the encounter with the mightiest kings living at that time. We go back and we think of Daniel chapter 1. God's name was vindicated when Daniel and his uh, friends came to Babylon. Here they are teenagers in this foreign land and they are given, they are selected to be trained as wives in Babylon. They are given an exalted position and they are to eat of the king's table of the meat and the wine. And yet they refuse. They, they do not want to defile their bodies with that meat and wine and they rather ask for a healthy diet. And they are given that healthy diet for 10 days in order to be tested and they pass that test. They pass that judgment. God's name is glorified there, right there in the very first chapter. And then you look at Daniel chapter 2 and you remember the image the prophecy, again, the image, the prophecy, the dream is given to a pagan king, and yet the interpretation is given to God's prophet, and God's name is glorified. In chapter 3, of course, we remember the story, the three friends that are cast into the fiery furnace. Again, God's true worship is exalted, and the false worship of Nebuchadnezzar um, is laid open to see for everyone that this is not the word of the Lord. This is not the way the Lord wants worship to take place. There's only one to be worshipped, and that is God in heaven. Daniel chapter 4, the dream of the tree that was cut down. Again, 
Nebuchadnezzar gives all glory to himself. He was brought low for a period of seven years. And that at the end of that seven years, he, put, he, he looked up to heaven and he repented of his sins. He was restored and God's name was glorified. In chapter 5, the king that thought that he could take those sacred vessels from the temple, he, he, caught, he thought that he could you know, cast away all the counsel of God, though he knew what had happened with his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. He was aware of God's call upon his life, and yet him, thinking that Babylon was secure and safe, it fell in one night. God won that day. God's name, again, was glorified. And in chapter 6, of course, the story that we just looked at, God's name is glorified. And what, what the people of Medo-Persia, the law of Medo-Persia said could not be changed, God changed. God changed. And so in each and every chapter in this historic section of the book of Daniel, we see God's name glorified. We see God vindicated over and over and over again. And there's a lot of typology in these stories, a lot of terminology and phrases and names that are going to return in the prophetic section of the book of Daniel and Revelation that are going to be very significant for us. Because when we face similar trials in the end of time, these stories are going to be of a great, great great help for us, a great, great inspiration for us and motivation for us to keep close to God because God is a God that can deliver. God is a God can ch- that can change even that which rulers of this world believe to be the last word. Amen? Amen. I want to close with the parable of the fig tree. Some of you are familiar with this parable. Jesus spoke a parable in Luke chapter 13 and he talked about a fig tree. And this fig tree was being kept by an owner and a dresser, and they, they lavished their care upon this fig tree, and yet it would not bring forth fruit. And then Jesus says in the parable, he tells this parable of the owner that says to the fig tree, to the dresser, well, why don't you cut down this fig tree because it's not bearing any fruit? And then the dresser of the fig tree says to the owner of the fig tree, well, give it one more year. And if it bears fruit during that year, then well. And if not, then you can cut it down. And then abruptly the parable ends. I think this parable has a lot to say, especially when we look at these stories of the book of Daniel. Because just as this tree was being investigated for one year, just as this tree was being uh, cared for one year to see if it would bear fruit or not, so it is in all of these stories There's a time of investigation. What are Daniel's friends going to do? What is Daniel going to do under the pressure of Babylon? What is going to happen? Are they going to go in the, are they going to walk in the path of righteousness? Are they going to walk in the path of obedience? Or in this time of investigation, are they going to compromise and walk in the paths of Babylon? Well, over and over again, we see that they chose for the path of righteousness and God blessed and they bore fruit. And, in a, in, and we could say that they ended that parable with bearing fruit. The question is, what kind of fruit are we bearing in our lives? I pray that as we look at our lives, as we are, in a sense, that fig tree that are being investigated, that God will find fruit in us, not because of our own works, of our own righteousness, but because God is doing a work in us and that we have decided to be faithful no matter what. Let's pray in closing. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for being with us as we've been studying these stories of the past. What a great inspiration it is, Lord, to see how you have worked in the lives of these kings. And Lord, it is a motivation and inspiration for us, Lord, that you will also work in our lives. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust in you and that these stories can give form to our lives as we decide to
side with you no matter what. Thank you so much, Lord. Be with us now as we take a break, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.